The following presentation was recorded live at the 2018 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, or to subscribe to the Bioneers podcast, visit www.bioneers.org. Hello, everybody. My name is Artie Mangan. I'm the director of the Restorative Food Systems Program at Bioneers. When my mother was pregnant, she told me that she had a craving to eat dirt. Geophagy, eating soil, has tribal and rural traditions and still is practiced today in places like Australia, East Africa, China, and elsewhere. Healthy soil contains an array of minerals and beneficial bacteria, and the clay particles can bind harmful things like pathogens and viruses to detoxify the body. In The Unsettling of America, Wendell Berry wrote, Soil is the great connector of our lives. It is the healer, restorer, and resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, and death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community. Because without proper care for it, we can have no life." End of quote. Soil is alive. In fact, it's teeming with life. 25% of all species live in the soil. One tablespoon of healthy soil has more organisms than there are people on the planet. And yet, only 1% of soil organisms have even been identified. That, which people thoughtlessly refer to as dirt, is in fact the most complex ecosystem on Earth, an interconnected, cooperating web of life whose diversity and complexity are its vitality, a vitality that plants, animals, and people depend on. Rock breaks down by actions of sun, rain, wind, ice, and the biological activity of living organisms, combined with air and water, and the organic matter deposited by decaying plants and animals to develop mature soil, a process that can take depending on circumstances, decades to millennia. Unfortunately, soil is being eroded 25 times faster than it's being developed, mainly due to poor farming practices, like plowing, chemical inputs, monocropping, etc. Our presenters today will share their work on the importance of this precious resource and, our, and the impact on our health. Tim LaSalle, co-founder and co-director of the Regenerative Agriculture Initiative at California State University, Chico, was formerly the CEO of Rodale Institute, the executive director of the Alan Savory Center for Holistic Management, and Tim has also worked in Africa, focusing on soils and food security. Josh Witten is an ecotech entrepreneur who founded the transit tech company Translock, which was acquired by Ford. Josh also co-founded one of the first urban farms in the southeastern US, and most recently has created makesoil.org. And Daphne Miller, a physician and associate clinical professor at UC San Francisco, is a pioneer in studying the connections between food production, ecology, and health. Dr. Miller is the founder of Whole Family MD, San Francisco's first integrative primary care practice, and is the author of Pharmacology, Total Health from the Ground Up. Please welcome our guests. Thank you very much, Artie. It's a delight and a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. 
because we have a chance to kind of take what Dr. Miller has sort of offered as a title for us to work with from her book, Pharmacology. And what that implies to me is something very, very broad about the health of ourselves, the food we eat, the soil we work on, but also the climate. And this is one of the things that I want us to actually be present with. And that is, within a year, two years, we really have to turn the trajectory of our climate pathway around. And that doesn't mean just reducing emissions. As a matter of fact, if we stopped emitting today, the planet would continue to warm beyond habitability. And that means we have to draw down. And contrary to some of the numbers put out, we could do that much more robustly than has been currently reported. But we know right now we are stepping into scenarios that somewhat are unlivable. And particularly here in the North Coast, you recently have experienced that if you're from here and know how serious this is and the trauma that it leaves within our psyches and our ability actually sometimes to function. These are only continuing to increase. And we know the 12 largest fires in California, three of them were this year. And that's the trajectory and that's the trend of where we're headed. And working in Africa, one of the things we saw is the scientists had told us Africa would be affected first. And they seem so far away, those people there. And we don't seem to really be conscious of that. But it did happen there first. And suffering occurred, hunger has occurred, but also death, sometimes suicide, as farmers sometimes do here when there is no hope. And these are the, some of the things we experienced and tried to work with while there. One of the reasons I came back to the United States is very simple. We seem to live under sometimes false information. And I borrowed this from Paul Hawkins' group when they were looking at where we need to be, and there's been a lot of discussion around 350 parts per million. There's an organization that promotes 350 parts per million, and there's no evidence that 350 parts is survivable. The evidence is 280, and that's what all of this data tells us, and that's the level we need to be looking at and not trying to comfortably get by and see how little we can do to get where we have to get back to 280. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I think is uh, not well understood is that industry, when we look at the legacy levels of CO2 equivalents that live in the atmosphere, has not been the biggest contributor. It's actually been soil and soil loss. Actually, as we started to till on this planet, when you look at paleo records, we started to warm the planet because we cut forests and lost carbon dioxide out of the soil. And we changed from a cooling trend to a warming trend at that time. And what's happening is we're dumping our excess heat into the oceans. That is not going to turn around in a few years, even if we stop emissions. And that's what will continue to warm the planet. Dr. Tom Garreau is saying, you know what? The IPCC has been tasked with looking at 30 to 50 years, maybe 100 years. But he said that's kind of like looking at firing a gun and tracking that bullet for the first one-tenth of a second. But if we track it out, then what he's telling us is very simple. The planet is going to warm to 17 degrees centigrade, and that is not livable. And the seas that we worry about, six feet rise, are going to be 75 foot. And that's 
Not real problem because we won't be here. Most species won't be here at that time frame because we will have suffered what's really clearly is the sixth extinction at that point. So in essence, we are confounding the seems like we want to push ourselves to the edge. We're doing that with soil in another way, not just releasing the carbon, but we really have 60 years left when we're talking about food and hunger on this planet. For some of you young people in here, that's in your lifetime. Drive up and down the highways of California and see how much tillage and how much chemicals are, are going into that system and how we're degrading and eroding those soils and their ability to produce. So what we know, and here's where um, in, in Africa, the field next to my research and my demonstration plots that Howard Buffett had given me, and he said, Tim, I'm going to give you some of the best, worst soil you can ever find. And it was pretty, pretty rough. It was very, very sandy. But the field next door, because the weeds were growing up, the seed were going all come into my field, I asked the farm manager, would you just diss that once, because I didn't want herbicides there. I felt really badly when one rainstorm came and that much washed away just right next to my field. My fields that were no-till and only biological with no outside inputs, only seed, um, had no visible loss of soil whatsoever. And that's why no-till is crucial and critical. Working with a, a group of leaders in Burundi, and I asked them what they loved about the Egyptians so much, and they said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, I've been to your source of the Nile here in your mountains in Burundi, and the water comes out clear, crystal clear from that spring as it starts that journey towards Egypt. But I said, pretty soon it turns brown. You are sending your greatest resource down the Nile to Egypt. Every square inch of Burundi, 90% agrarian um, culture, is tilled by, by hoe, but it's tilled, and soils are disappearing. We know my neighbor here in San Luis Obispo County, where I live, uh, last winter, disked the way most farmers do there, and a good downpour came, and the county roads crew came and scooped his topsoil up out of the highway and hauled it to I don't know where, the dump or something, you know? That's the way we're treating that soil as dirt. And the only reason I have this picture is because Doug Tompkins was flying me in Argentina over farm after farm, erosion after erosion after erosion. So it begs the question, what have we learned? Have we turned this corner? We know about soil conservation. We're not doing it. We know about climate change. We don't appear to be motivated to actually making that shift too and drawing that legacy level down. What's crucial for us to make these steps is a different way of thinking about our soil. And Artie really had some beautiful lines that he shared with us from some very articulate people about the value and really how connected our life is to it. In my little place in San Luis Obispo County, this was a clod of soil after just a couple of years of winter cover crops versus the neighbor's field where he disks it a couple times a year. See how the soil held together? Actually, I forgot to take a picture of it the day I gave this talk, and I went in 10 days later, and it was, that's why the water's a little stained, but see the soil still aggregated, whereas this is what erodes. You can't get water in this either because it compacts and the airspaces disappear. This was in Africa, and that sandy soil that you saw wash away, in my fields, the aggregation held. When a guy asked me to come up, he wanted to use my soil as a demonstration, 
and there was the field right there that was right next to it. He said, bring me a clod from your field and, and, and the one next door. And I thought, ha, I'll never even get up to the farm offices where the classroom was because we had a group from all over the continent of Africa to learn from our no-till work because that sand is going to fall apart. And it not only didn't fall apart, it held together, aggregated in the water. So it'll percolate water, it'll hold. The biology means it's alive. It's emitting the glomalin to hold the soil particles together. That's crucial. In Ghana, I was working with Kofi Boa there, who's doing some tremendous work for his lifetime in conservation no-till agriculture. And we set up some research plots. And in this area, the rain was short that year. Very atypical, but no longer with climate change. And this plot of cowpeas here, that one time was not tilled. And again, that would have been tilled by hand. Whereas this plot of cowpeas was tilled. Crop failure, a crop. Holding soil structure, water percolation, starting to hold carbon. It's really important in that process. A dear friend of mine who was just in our home this week, Roland Bunch, who's worked overseas, he was the first one in the 80s that showed me in Honduras that you could build topsoil at over an inch a year. And he said, there's not a textbook in the country that will tell you you can do that. And I saw it and understood it, and it made me change my conventional agricultural background thinking that there's a way to turn this way around. We're not just extracting, we can actually invest in. Well, he said there was gonna be a famine come in Africa which showed up, and this year it's gonna be even worse. And he said it will continue to be worse, not based upon weather. Because in the same year, you can have a flash flood and a drought. And how does that happen? How that happens is that when your soil carbon has been farmed out of the soil and your soil structure is no longer there, a flash flood will come and hit that soil and run off and go down the streams. And it, when the sun comes out, the water evaporates and you have a drought. And that's what's happening. Whereas in some of those countries, 35 to almost 40% of the children are being stunted permanently from brain development and malnutrition, physically also stunted. We're condemning them to a very poor quality of life from the very outset by soil degradation. In my little place, there's some cover crop. I borrowed my neighbor's um, horse arena packer just to roll it down, try and protect my soil and build soil carbon. These are some of the principles we have to start to bring back and something's going wrong here. I may need help. Maybe I hit, no, I didn't hit that. Please. Thank you. Um, so what we're saying is, is, it, is we have to reorient how we're working in the field. And the tillage question has to be shifted because we've got to keep the fungal communities alive and not tear them up. We've got to keep the soil structure and allow the earthworms to do their work. And we have to help and enhance the biology because it can do some miraculous things for us if we actually support it. And one of the really critical ways to support it is to have live roots in the ground all the time. Live roots in the ground all the time means cover crops in the winter in this state, and it means your harvest crop in the rest of the time. Thank you very much. I'm going to stand away from that. Okay. All right. So we developed, we put a stake in the ground. What is regenerative agriculture? This will be stolen and changed and shifted and used for business purposes, but we wanted to put a stake in the ground and say regenerative agriculture 
It basically describes a farming and grazing practices that among other benefits, reverse climate change by rebuilding soil organic matter and restoring degraded soil biodiversity, resulting in both carbon drawdown and improving water cycle. And that's the truth. That's what we can do. And here's some data I want to share with you very quickly. When I was at Rodale, we had this data. We knew that no-till could sequester about 40 kilograms of carbon an acre. We knew that winter cover crops could get up almost to 1,000 kilograms. And we knew that compost applied every third year could give us over a ton per hectare. So what happens is, wrote a white paper. Al Gore picked up on it. We spent some time briefing him. But it never took off. Nobody really got onto it. And I go off to Africa and come back and find out some much better data. Besides, there was so many pot shots being thrown at me that I was crazy that you could sequester that much. But look at here in the University of Georgia, on very poor soils, they pulled the crops out, put grasses in, and multi-paddock grazed cows, and were able to do, in essence, an eight-ton improvement in that soil carbon. But David Johnson's work, out of uh, New Mexico State University is challenging us here to look at 10 to 19 tons. And he's challenging us through a biological focus. What's not off the scale about this is I can cite three farmers where they have gone in and verified they have matched that level on farm. Gabe Brown is one of them. Will Harris and George is another one. There's an Australian farmer doing the same thing. So we know it's possible, not just theoretically or in the field trials in New Mexico State, but actually happening on farm. And David, we've now given an adjunct professorship at Chico, is changing paradigms, and these are hard to change and we don't have time to wait, so you all have to help us. But in essence, what we're doing is we're moving into an idea that the soil is very much living, which you said, Artie. Not only that, we, need, we are learning that if we can improve the fungal ratios of at least one to one, if not two to one, over bacterial, we can turn everything around to where we start to see bacteria that come together and work together and create things that wouldn't be there otherwise. It's like a healthy gut biome, the same thing in the soil. We know that we can increase soil sequestration by over a magnitude of most of what's being reported. And then we know that the yields, whoops, that was the wrong button, that the yields can jump from about 660 in most agricultural grams per meter to 3,200. We can feed the world, not us, but the local farmers can feed themselves. Food security in Africa is based on smallholder farmers being food insecure. Just help them with soil life and fertility, and they have crops to sell. And so this is Gabe Brown's farm, and you see what happens here is that he started no-till and crop diversity and cover crops, and his soil organic matter got up to about 1.72% carbon, and he put multi-species cover crops in, it started to take off. When he started to add livestock, more biology from the bacteria and life that's in the, in the uh, saliva and from the manure, it really took off, and that's where he ended up with the kinds of levels David Johnson showed in his test plots that he was showing in New Mexico. What we also know as we deplete soils and destroy them, it seems, and this is a study we're trying to get funded, to redo with regenerative practice versus conventional, but look at what's happened to our nutrient base. Sodium, potassium, phosphorus, magnesium, calcium, iron, copper, in dairy, cheese, meat, fruit, vegetables, have all plummeted in this country, and why? 
And so we know as we're killing the life of the soil, the organism's ability to create or bring to that plant root is being diminished. And that would be our theory that we'd like to keep working on. We know in vegetables, I just pulled this out of a study, except for cabbage, basically everything, if we just look at iron, has all declined. So our food is of less quality. I could have put up a whole bunch of the different nutrients that this study did, but in essence, I just put up a couple. I grew up on a peach farm, among other things, in California, in the Central Valley, and I didn't know we were really selling vitamin A out of peaches. They were tremendous back then, uh, in the 70s, but look, at it's much less now. We're continuing to lose what our healthy foods were giving us. And why, when you source your food, really knowing what's going on with the soil health is really crucial. While at Rodale, the senior scientists had shown me some data on side-by-side -side comparisons, and they were looking and kind of, you know, ballyhooing, hey, this is organic versus conventional. There's a problem with organic in that it has a tendency to use a lot of tillage. And there's a real problem with conventional, and it has a tendency to use a lot of chemicals. And that's where regenerative comes in and builds a bridge between the two of how we stop the tillage and we stop the chemicals at the same time. But in there, I put in this, I added to his study, this carbon levels, because I knew what those were in those side-by-side -side fields. The old farm had about 1% carbon conventional and it didn't really move too far. Whereas the organics, which were basically cover crop in the winter systems, started to increase soil carbon. That starts to feed biology. Of course, the chemicals were out of the organic system too, and we had this increase in all of these nutrients here, from boron down there to potassium. So we, we saw that. When we're knowing that there are farmers that are moving their carbon here into the 7% level, what might those food products look like for nutrients? My wager is pretty darn strong in the kind of food we'd all like to be eating. David, I took this from his slide too, he shared with me, but that is, is that when you looked at his soil evaluation after he inoculated it with biology, and I encourage you to go and look at some of his work, and it's a biology that's done through aerobic composting. It's not a compost additive, it's an inoculant, and the fungal communities are very high in there. The amount of magne uh, magnesium, iron, uh, manganese, calcium, zinc, and copper skyrocketed, as did the normal elements we think about in farming, NPK. So we're getting the micronutrients in the plants at the same time that we're increasing the other needs. Did you give me a five minute yet? Three more, thank you. I'm gonna make it, Artie. <laughs> so, here we are. What I say is, perhaps the Trump administration will step forward and really work on climate change with us, right? <laughs> oh, well maybe the universities will jump on and really give us the science to fix this, right? Oh, maybe the farmers will just change the way they're farming, right? Maybe we'll all stop driving and flying. And, oh, who's going to do it? It really is up to us, every one of us, in thinking about how do we come together to shift our collective consciousness and our relationship to earth and soil. In not just food purchases, how we're doing our own yards, our own fields if we have them, but also, how do we educate others? How do we bring groups in and help them understand what we need to do? How we take a Sonora Desert that looks like this, sequestering almost no carbon, 
to one that's multi-paddock grazed, that is sequestering carbon, restoring moisture and life in the system. This is drawdown, and this continues to release. And so we have to be able to not only see Earth this way, we all have to step up. I would offer me and us all here today that are at least responsible to come and care about these questions and begin to engage them fully. We actually can do this. We have the understanding of how nature works when it is supported robustly. It works as a whole system. It makes the adjustments it needs, and it will sequester carbon and draw down our excess at levels higher than Paul Hawken, than Al Gore, than most people are yet letting us understand. The potential is tremendous. So I offer that at Chico State, which is a six-hour drive for me, and I go up at least once a month, we have a director there, Dr. Cindy Daly, who was the right person to invest in, a president of the university who's wrapped her arms around this topic of regenerative agriculture and a focus on making a difference. And I encourage you to go onto the website on Regenerative Agriculture Initiative at Chico State, and on the resources, there's a whole group of speakers that we've brought in, most of them addressing this issue. David Johnson's full hour and a half presentation on biology and what he's revealing is on that site, and we welcome you to engage it. With that, thank you very much for your attention. Well, everything that I cut out of my presentation was more than adequately covered by Tim, and that's an example of an ecosystem. That's how it works. So I'm Josh Witten, and uh, I'll trust that my slide will show up eventually. Ten years ago, I had what would proved to be one of the single most transformative experiences of my entire life. And maybe the single most impactful thing I've, I've ever done. And that was, I decided I would learn how to make soil. So I got a couple abandoned pallets that I found in my city. And I kind of just nailed them together and then some friend had some scrap chicken wire and I, I used that to finish off the front. And that was pretty much it. Now, how in the world did that end up being one of the single most transformative acts? Let me tell you. I did that in an apartment complex, not hidden away in some backyard. I did that in full view of, of the hundred or so people living there. And then I went around and knocked on their doors. I knocked on my neighbor's doors and I said, I'm just a single guy, I don't make enough food waste. I heard this wild idea that we can turn our food waste into soil. I've never seen it, to be honest, but internet says so, I'm willing to give it a try. I need your food waste though. You know? And they're all like, you mean the stuff I'm just throwing away? Like you want my garbage? Like yeah, but it, it turns out it might not be garbage after all. So, like, and so they said, well can I bring this, can I bring that? And I said, yeah, just bring everything, like the, your coffee grounds, your pizza boxes, let's just see how far this can go. And I would literally walk them over to this compost bin and just drop it in there. Within a few weeks 
Over a dozen people were doing that. Because you see, I'd made it really easy for them. I said, you don't have to learn how to make soil. I'll take care of it. Just come and, and bury your food stuff in this mix of leaves and sawdust that I've got ready for us, and I'll take care of the rest. And I spent the next three months really, really getting good at making soil. And by golly, it worked. Like the food waste, the pizza boxes, the eggshells, the coffee grounds, all of it disappeared and turned into this jet black nourishing soil, much to my surprise and the surprise of my dozen neighbors. And what happened next was completely unexpected. Everybody who participated had what I would call a full-on environmental awakening. We're talking zero to 60, people who didn't know pretty much anything about the planet, and suddenly they were saying, I can't believe I've been throwing this stuff away for years. I can't believe my parents throw this stuff away. Can you believe that in our university dining hall they throw this stuff away? Like, they got active. Three of the people who were participating there, who had never known anything about soil before, went on to form what is now one of the nation's largest compost pickup services. I mean, people from this single experience of watching their food waste turn into soil changed what they did with the rest of their lives. So, I, I spent some time wondering how could this simple act have been so powerful? Like I spent like the past 10 years and I would every couple of years I would, oh, that must have been what was going on. So immediately I would say, first off, it was a relief. The moment that people began dropping their food waste into this bin, it was a relief. Why is it a relief? Because deep down I think we're all sort of ashamed these days to be human. We, we are the only animal who talks really badly about ourselves. You know, we're wrecking the planet, this and that. Everybody knows now that we're wrecking the planet. But what do you do about it? Do you, do you lie in bed and mope all day? Like, like, people are just suppressing all of this shame of being human. But here they were, dropping the food waste into, the, into, the, into this bin, watching it turn back into soil. And what went from the shameful experience of putting the planet in the garbage can, and that is literally what's going on, folks, when we let that food waste, when we don't just let it, when we throw it away, we are treating the planet like garbage. That's actually what's going on. We're treating the planet like garbage. And suddenly, these people who were treating the planet like garbage, and we've all done it, now they were having a beautiful experience instead. If you think about it, they were having the first regenerative experience of their lives. Because almost no modern person today, no matter how many degrees and PhDs and digits in their bank account, almost no living human today, relatively, has had a regenerative experience where their life was brought into harmony with the planet's existence. Recycling doesn't do it, driving an electric car doesn't do it. That stuff is nice, but it's just damage control. It's not regenerative. So suddenly, with this humble little bin, people were having a regenerative experience with the planet that depended on them to participate. So don't underestimate that experience. It's a zero-to-one experience from nothing to something. Some people, I would say, began to have spiritual experiences there. Churches 
in many places have lost their meaning. Temples and so on, pointy spires, gold trim. What does it really mean anymore? We've seen so many abuses with religion. And suddenly, I swear, this soil bin became like an altar. And these food scraps became like a, an offering. And so when you go from, from throwing the planet in the garbage <laughs> to now feeling that you're carrying the, the broken planet that has fed you and created your life force back to this portal of regeneration, think of the delta there. That's a massively different experience you're having. And frankly, it's an experience that leaves you with a new kind of consciousness. An old kind of consciousness, but a new kind of consciousness for most modern people. Because what's happening there is you're completing a feedback loop. And there's almost no complete feedback loops in this modern time. We live in a box and bin culture. You, couple, within a couple clicks, there's a box on its way to you. It's gonna show up on your doorstep. You play with it for a while, you get tired of it, it breaks, and then you put it in another box or bin and somebody hauls it away in a truck. And it never dawns on the average person anymore that nature needed to be consumed to turn into the product you bought. And that nature needs to be consumed again to turn into the landfill <laughs> to store it. Never, because we're kept in the sweet little consumption fun part in the middle. But it makes us stupid because the human mind is such, it's the single most complex device we've ever experienced, we've ever discovered, rather, scientifically. And of course, when that's integrated into the whole body, these trillion cells that we all possess, that's, that's the greatest technology we've ever encountered. There's nothing more complex in the known universe. And when it gets a complete feedback loop, it updates itself automatically. And so now people bringing their food waste and simply watching it turn back into soil, and me coming out in the evening and prettying it up and making sure it's all going well, it updated the feedback loop for the first time in their life, the whole circle of life, and their consciousness updated automatically. And they were left with what I would call ecosystem consciousness. Because it makes a difference if you have it or not. If you don't have it, all you see are some shrubs and trees and rocks and you call those raw materials and it's probably a good idea to manage the raw materials so you can keep making stuff and buying stuff. That's what it's like to not have ecosystem consciousness. But when you have ecosystem consciousness, you look out and it's like your third eye is opened or something. You see that it's more than just a couple of trees and shrubs. You see that there's fungi and you see that there's microbes and you, you can just tell it's all there, this big teeming web of life. It's all there and it's alive. And you end up with what I call earth empathy. You can just feel the living planet and you want to be kind to it. That's it. You don't need the scary charts and graphs and scary statistics and doomsday scenarios. That's what we're doing now. We're chasing people around with all that scary stuff and they don't have ecosystem consciousness and they don't know what to do and they get full of shame and they feel fearful and disempowered. So we've got a lot of problems today. We've got, as Tim just told us, we've got this issue with CO2. There's too much of it in the air. We've got this nutrient loss going on. I think the truth is, every week when you go to the grocery store, the food is a little less nutritious than the previous week you shopped there. 
It just, it actually makes sense. That's actually what's going on. We've got this topsoil loss. The UN says uh, 60 years left of agricultural harvest at the rate of topsoil loss today. And then we've got this issue of seven and a half billion people who frankly, right now, do not have the consciousness required to coexist with one another. See, the, the more people exist on the planet, the higher our consciousness needs to be to actually exist peaceably with one another, not kill each other, not kill the planet. And if you were to sum up our sum total consciousness right now, it is below whatever threshold is required for this many people to actually survive on this planet. What's crazy is I think we know the solution. And that is, that is to make soil. So 1.6 billion tons of food waste right now, every year going to landfills. I think it's probably more because there's a bunch of things people don't even consider food anymore. All those hundreds of millions of acorns lying around on the sidewalk right now, I don't think those are in those statistics. All that food rots in the landfills, goes up as methane, that's even worse, that's an even worse greenhouse gas than CO2, and then turns into CO2 later. All those nutrients we're missing, well, they're headed off to the garbage dump. It's not, you don't need Sherlock Holmes to tell you where it's going. Like, you can see it, it's going off to the garbage dump. In the topsoil, we know, we know that we can turn this food waste back into, into topsoil. And when we make soil, it gives us that, that consciousness that we need. It's absolutely raised my consciousness. I think it raises your consciousness whenever your, your skin comes into contact with living soil. And we brought some with us in case you want to talk to the planet directly yourself. Because it's easy to get depressed and disconnected these days. But when your skin is having a conversation with hundreds of billions of microbes in this soil, non-verbally, subconsciously, you cheer up a bit, you don't feel so alone. There's no, there's, you're not alone, there's no way you could possibly be alone. But this conversation isn't happening anywhere these days. It's all glass and steel and plastic. So when I say that making soil can save the planet, do I mean it? I mean yes, I, I absolutely mean it. But I mean millions of us making soil. You and me, in this audience, all of us making soil, just like my neighbors and I did with that humble little bin. How do you do that? Well, we've got a plan. First of all, to make soil go mainstream, something that's not just a niche, enviro, eco, hobby, but actually mainstream, we've got to change a few things. I'm sorry, folks, but the word compost is terminally unsexy. It's just not going to scale. So we're just going to call it soil from now on. And we're also going to create a new identity for the human race to step into, to step up to, that of soil makers. The soil maker, mark my words, the soil maker will be, within a few years' time, a revered role in society. Who's your farmer is going to also become who's your soil maker. You see, the act of making soil is a uniquely human possibility. Other animals make soil, but they pretty much have to chew it up and poop it out. We can do that too, actually. But we're the only animal so far that has the intelligence to manage carbon and nitrogen, air and moisture in just the right way. 
that causes these trillions of microbes to come, come alive and to, to heal our planet. That's the one thing the human animal can do that no other animal can. When was the last thing you heard something good about human beings? You can do something some, that no other animal can, because you're a special animal. All that's been missing is that new identity for us to step into and a dash of technology, which we've made at makesoil.org. That represents an online platform that does something that nothing has ever done to this point, which is it connects people who, are, who know how to make soil with other people who are willing to contribute their food scraps and waste, people who are done throwing the planet in the garbage. And it acts like a nervous system for this nutrient cycling, carbon sequestering, new type of consciousness, self-organizing thing that we need to do. So if you go there right now, if you know how to make soil, there is probably no more impactful, important thing you could possibly do than to go to that website, put yourself on it, and then your neighbors can find you and you can start accepting their food waste and they can start making soil. They can just witness you making the soil. You're doing 80% you're doing of it, but they're gonna get enough of a hit. They're gonna get enough to have this environmental awakening just by that fact. If you don't know how to make soil or aren't ready to or think you can't, you sign up anyway and we'll have your address and we'll see it on the map. And my team who is here, could you all raise your hand if you're on the make soil team and you're here? These people will be happy to talk with you afterwards about how to get involved. But once you're on that map, the team is behind the scenes finding a soil maker near you. We're gonna, if we have to go out there and teach somebody in your neighborhood to make soil and to sign up on this map, and we have to walk them over to their computer and put them on this map, we will, so that you can then see them and that you can take your food scraps over to them. So all we have to do is scale that experience a million times over. And can it work? Yes, because humans do... Millions of humans do all kinds of things. They watch soccer, they drink beer, they go to movies. There's no reason that making soil can't be something that millions of humans do too. <laughs> and it actually makes sense because this problem, this food waste problem, this climate problem, this carbon problem, this nutrient problem, this topsoil problem, it's a decentralized problem. It's not coming from any one source. It's a decentralized problem. <laughs> Highly correlated with wherever we are, and we're decentralized. The solution is a decentralized solution. You can't wait for a government to fix this, or a few farmers. It's us, and we can do it, and we just haven't realized that we can. And I, don't, I actually don't know that there's any solution outside of that. I'm not sure there's meant to be any solution outside of that. I think climate change is a setup. I think this whole environmental situation is a setup. And it only gets solved if we all work together and come along and evolve. That's, that's the feedback loop that's needing to happen there. We can't wait for anybody else to do this, and we can do this together. So, the human being, the human species, has the potential to go from the single most destructive animal on the planet to the single most regenerative animal on the planet. Absolutely, that is, that is our potential, to take this unprecedented intelligence that has been so dysfunctionally misapplied and to direct it toward the Earth's regeneration. The human being, the single most regenerative animal on the planet, that would be a beautiful new identity for us all to step into together. So, there's no more wondering what to do or how to do it or who's going to do it. 
Let's just make soil together. Thank you. have any slides. I just have me. Uh, <laughs> I'm Daphne Miller and first of all I want to thank uh, Bioneers for um, organizing this and Marty and uh, Josh and Tim both gave such wonderful talks that I'm going to try and carefully navigate or around what all the things that they've already shared with you. Um, I'm a family physician by training but I've actually recently developed a new professional title for myself. I'm actually a medico-anthropodologist. <laughs> so you guys know pedology is actually, as opposed to like podology, which might be the study of feet, pedology is the study of soil. And anthropodology, which is kind of a relatively new field, is the study of humans' interaction with soil. So, like, positively or negatively. Well, medical anthropodology does not yet exist, but I think I'm, I'm going to put myself forward as maybe the first one. Um, and it really is this idea of how humans interact with soil, how that impacts our personal health. And the reason I care so much about that connection and telling that story is partly because I'm a doctor, and so, you know, that's how I trained was to care about personal health. But kind of on a larger scale, what I've discovered is that most of us, no matter how much we might care about the planet, as Josh was saying, we finally get activated and we finally make a difference when it has to do with our own cells and our own body. We just tend to be a little bit self-centered that way, and I can't say that I'm any different. We really have to understand how it's gonna impact number one. So a lot of my work really has been kind of trying to connect the dots between those big, frightening environmental issues and our own cells and also turning it on its head and not just talking about toxins and things that are going to kill us and destroy us, but actually talking about ways that we can make shifts so that it harmonizes and keeps us well and, in fact, helps us thrive, which is something that we don't talk about very much in conventional medicine. So... I'm going to give you, a, it, Josh gave a wonderful sort of creation story of, you know, when this all started for him with the screen and his apartment building. And as he was talking, I was thinking, what is the creation story that I can share with you a little bit about when I started to wake up to this? Um, I, I, my parents tr tried to homestead a number of times when I was a kid on a, a farm, so maybe I could kind of trace it back to that. And I also did part of my medical residency in Salinas, you know, in the bread, the lettuce basket of America, and realized that I was treating so many patients who really had been harmed in one way or another by soil, by soil that had not been well taken care of and sprayed with herbicides and pesticides. And, um, you know, they'd either been harmed by the social system that was set up 
and that mistreated farmers or harmed by the soil or harmed by um, um, unhealthy food that we were growing from that soil or so on and so forth. So those, in a way, were part of my creation story. But what really made me start to work in this way <laughs> was going to Peru for a couple months, about uh, 11 years ago. Um, I, there's one thing you can do, and this was just when the internet was starting to allow you to do this, um, was that you could look for uh, family doctors around the globe who were working in really remote areas who needed a vacation. And I went online and found a doc. She was originally from the US, but she had been working up a little tiny tributary of the Amazon River in a village called Las Palmeras, and she'd been working there for years and years and looked like she'd never had a vacation. <laughs> she really wanted to go back to Wisconsin. And so I actually went down there and filled in for her for a couple months. And here I was working in this tiny little village that you can only get to like with a dugout canoe or a little skinny motorboat that can make it up a tributary and taking care of mostly the local Indian population who would come in their dugouts sometimes for days and really only when they needed a conventional doctor. You know, like most of the time they could take care of things in their own village. And I was working there, um, and it only took me a couple days in this tiny little clinic, you know, with no windows, just mosquito netting and so on, to realize that I wasn't treating any of the diseases that I see in my office in San Francisco. I wasn't seeing the diabetes and the heart disease and the cancers and the depression and all the stuff that is like my bread and butter in San Francisco. And I started to wonder at first, I was like, well, maybe that's, they're all dying of snake bite and machete wounds before they can develop that other stuff. But, and I did see plenty of snake bite and machete wounds, by the way. But then I started to realize that there were plenty of elderly patients in this community. In fact, percentage-wise, just as many as I was seeing in San Francisco. But they were all well. And I started to wonder, what is the secret sauce here? What's making the difference? Well, they had less stress, couldn't buy cigarettes in the village. I mean, their, you know, alcohol was somewhat limited, but they made this really good sugarcane alcohol. But what I started to realize is it really had to do with their diet. There was no processed foods coming from outside, and they had to eat everything that grew locally within their environment there. And they, at first, I didn't think there was any agriculture going on, but then I realized it just looked like jungle, but there was plenty of food coming out of there. And they were eating with the season, and they were eating in proportion to how much they worked in the day and how much they could harvest. And all of these things that made perfect sense. They were eating the perfect jungle diet for themselves. And I got so excited about this that I actually came back to San Francisco and I wrote a whole book about it, about how indigenous diets could keep us healthy. And you know, I sort of then went around the world writing about indigenous diets. Well, it was a couple years after I finished this book that I realized that I was completely, I had completely missed the boat. And then it had, in fact, yes, it had to do with their diet. And yes, I could get excited about their diet. But really, it was the environments that was growing this food, the soil that was producing this food, that was the secret sauce. 
That is where their health came from. And the fact that they were living in this kind of regenerative cycle with their environment and treating the soil as if it were an extension of their own bodies. And I was ashamed that I had spent so much time to blabbing to audiences about jungle diets and, you know, if only they started to have their own jungle diet, they would be fine. Um, I, by the way, that book still sells more than the one afterward, which I think makes a lot more sense, so go show you. Um, <laughs> but in any case, I went back and I said, I got to start to learn from soil builders. And so I went out, because doctors are really good at doing internships. I went out and I started to learn from family farmers around the country. And what I started to learn was that, in fact, we are doing all these practices that Tim talked about so well that are destroying soil and directly destroying our health. For example, he talked about tillage which is you know, literally where you take your plow and it's what we've done you know, since the Mayflower here in this country, because we just have always thought it was a great idea. Uh, and you, know, you, mo you move the earth, you take what's under, you move it up. And um, you know, we thought of that as this perfect way to get things ready for seeds. Well, it turns out that underground are billions and billions of unpaid workers that are living in these perfect colonies, these fungi and these bacteria. And every time you till, you destroy them and set them back to ground zero where they have to rebuild these networks. Now, why do we care about those from a health standpoint? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, tilling, and there's good research to support this, puts particulate matter or PM10 into the air, and we know that when we till, we have much higher rates of asthma and allergy and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and all these things that affect all of us. But also by tilling, we are destroying those unpaid workers whose job it is to scavenge nutrients from organic matter in the soil, all that great stuff that Josh is building with his food, and pass it on to the rootlets of the plants where those nutrients go into the plants and into us. And now we have also a lot of evidence that when you lose that biodiversity in the soil, you lose the nutrient value of those plants. And once again, Tim showed us some beautiful slides showing that. So we're basically, by tilling, we are stealing our own nutrition. There's other ways that I can make. So herbicides and pesticides that are just used, actually herbicide use is going up in this country, sadly. And sadly, it's going up as we're getting of GMO crops because we're not actually going to a better system of agriculture. We're just you know, getting rid of the seed which is more resistant to herbicides. So we're caught in the middle in this terrible place. And herbicide use is going up and so why do we care about herbicides? Well, we have tons of research once again. There's a huge collaborative at UC Berkeley, the Chamacos Collaborative, showing that even if you're a farmer, you're getting super exposed, and it's having all kinds of ramifications in terms of cancers, in terms of um, different forms of autoimmune disease, once again, in terms of respiratory disease. But the research is showing that even when you live in a watershed that includes a farm, which is all of us, 
Or if you look, um, in terms of aerosolized exposure, if you live within a couple miles of a farm, which is what they've shown in Salinas with kids who have nothing to do with farming, but just live nearby, it can impact our health. So that's another way that the things that we're doing that are destroying the soil are also destroying all of us. Overgrazing is another example of how we're destroying soil. Rather than grazing in a system where we're actually using hooved animals proportionate to the earth and using them as a, a machine for regenerating um, fertility back into the earth, by overgrazing we're creating all kinds of um, um, problems both in terms of growing a kind of meat that is not good for us, but also, once again, in terms of erosion. And finally, monocropping. Are you all familiar with the idea of just growing one crop over thousands of acres, which is mostly what we do in this country? I mean, we grow very little other than corn, soy, and wheat in this country, and most of it we don't even grow for ourselves. By the way, do you know what percentage of cropland we, on which we actually grow vegetables in this country? Any guesses? 4% of cropland in this country is used for growing the foods that actually are the foods that are most responsible for keeping us healthy. But so by monocropping, we're also not feeding those bugs in the soil in the best way. I mean, imagine if you were just on one food, if all you ate was bananas, or all you ate was corn, or all you ate was soy. Well, it's the same with those bugs in the soil. They need a huge, diverse diet in order to thrive and in order to get different species and different taxa to grow. And by the way, you need diversity because each type of bug does a different type of job. So it, there's lots of research showing that when you have diverse cropping, you get more diversity in the soil. Guess what is the best indicator of a healthy diet for humans? A diverse diet. I mean, I'm not talking diversity in terms of cupcakes or, or chips, but diversity in fruits and vegetables and grains is probably the best indicator of a, a diversity of your diet. So as you can see, all these things match up. And how many of you went to the presentation, uh, the Kaiser's presentation on their farm, Singing Frog's Farm? There's a couple of you. Wonderful. So there's more and more examples of farms where they are growing beautiful soil and growing beautiful communities around the country. But Paul and Elizabeth are tackling each one of those things that I said. They're not tilling. They have a diversity of crops. They're keeping roots in the ground year round to keep those uh, fungi communities going. They're not overgrazing or overtaxing, and they're also con conserving nutrients. They're using about half the amount of water as their neighbors and half the amount of uh, fertilizer. So I hope that I'm starting to build a story for you about how your own cells and your own tissues relate to soil. And I'm hoping that as you go out there, as soil missionaries and soil builders and soil champions and so on, you're going to be able to tell friends and neighbors and policymakers and educate your own healthcare practitioners about why soil is actually one of the keys to health and keys to life. So thank you so much.
Thank you to all the panelists. Great, great news. I come from uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, where uh, our neighboring county has a pilot program of composting food waste, but only from businesses and commercial enterprises at the moment. And our county is in somewhat of a competition with them. And we said, well, if they can do it just for businesses, why don't we just go whole hog and go all homes, all food, businesses, wherever. Food waste has to be composted. And rather than rely on people to do it individually, we could do what they do in Berkeley, have a container. We have recycle containers. And why don't we have a recycle container for food waste and have the county compost it? And Prince George's is selling theirs at a, great, at, a, at a great profit. And they've made enough money, so they're going to increase their operation, hopefully to, to give it the capacity to handle all food uh, household waste. So do you, any of you have any information about successful, like, countywide programs so that I could use that as ammo in our quest? Yeah, one is San Francisco, and Gavin Newsom started that years ago uh, in, in county city, San Francisco. But I want to mention and comment that Maryland is one of the first states that are making a climate sequestration commitment, and they know, we've worked with them a little bit, that agriculture is the only way they can get to be carbon neutral. And so you and your state are beginning to maybe lead that conversation, and thank you for that. Thank you. I just want to mention that um, we, can't, we can't wait for municipality by municipality to create a municipal pickup system. Like if you just, if you just chart the trajectory of that historically, not enough cities are going to get their act together in time. And you and your neighbors can get your act together a lot more quickly. And, and also those pickup programs, it keeps outsourcing this basic environmental responsibility to deal with the waste that you generate. You can't, look, you can't recycle at home. You know, you can't have a smelter or something in your backyard, but you can have a, you can have a little bin where you watch the planet turn back into soil. And what else you, that you don't get with the box and bin culture pickup system, even for food waste, is you don't get that transformation of consciousness that I just cannot understate. It's very real. So in addition to these municipal programs, they're great if they happen, but decentralization is a principle that has worked elsewhere to take the world by storm, whether it's Airbnb or Bitcoin. And that principle, decentralization, has been nowhere in the discussion with these cities. It's a paradigm shift that they, don't, that they haven't had yet, so don't count it out. I actually agree with Josh. I think it is really great for it to happen community by community and uh, to actually put it back in even uh, locally. I, I, had a, I had a pretty amazing experience last fall taking the products of, not literally what Josh is making, but that idea, and regenerating soil with it, which is sort of the next step. Has, has anybody used the permaculture sheeting method here in the back? Yeah, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, and it's something that I had heard about for many years, but actually watching it in action of, you know, taking compost and layering it with just all your old newspapers and, and um, 
um, you know, cardboard and taking everybody else's Amazon boxes out of the bin and then just collecting all the leaves in your neighborhood and putting them in layers on top of very destroyed, hard-packed, a clay Berkeley soil and watching the whole thing come to life within 12 months so that I could actually dig down two feet and find worms in a place that I couldn't even dig before was an amazing experience. I think it would, it would, it would add the next level of consciousness to, to take what you're making and actually regenerate soil with it. So just, just a thought for anybody who hasn't tried it. <laughs> so, hi. Um, so I have two questions, and I think I'll just ask them, and then you can take it from there. The first question is to, to Josh. It's a very simple question. So when you had this soil in your apartment, and you're proposing that we all make soil, what do we do with the soil? What's your plan to get it someplace? So let me just ask the next question, and then I can sit down. Uh, but you can think about that. And then to Timothy, I, I had this question. So... Um, I saw on one of your slides this fact, which I've heard before, that it takes a thousand years to build three inches of soil or something. And, and yet, later on, you seem to point out that, well, actually, that's not true. So I wonder if you could talk about where that idea came from and how that's changing. Thanks. So the... The first misconception is that if we, were, if we continue to do what, I, what I'm proposing and what we are doing with make soil, that we're all going to suddenly sort of drown in healthy, nourishing soil. It's just going to become a nuisance or something. There's never an issue of what to do with that soil. There's, a 30, there's about a 30 to 1 compression ratio reduction in the volume that goes into the soil that comes out. And there's also a trend starting now where small batch, what we are calling artisanal soil, is being sold for high, high dollar values. Because as we create, again, the power of decentralization is that one of these soil makers is going to say, you know what? And people start to think this way on their own when they start putting their food waste in the, in the soil. They start thinking, wow, I really want to make good soil. I wonder if there's chemicals on this food waste I'm putting in there. They didn't really think of it much about putting it in their body, but suddenly they're seeing, they're like, do I want those chemicals in this soil? I don't think I do. Yeah. And, then, and then so if somebody wants to get really, really good with their soil making, decide I don't want any GMO in there, I don't want any conventional agriculture in there, and I want to, you can do beautiful things. You can go to a coffee shop and get all their coffee grounds, you can go to a chocolate factory and get all their cocoa hauls. You can create artisanal soil and sell it for 30 times more than the compost that's made down at the city. That's a cottage industry artisanal soil making economy that we could have. So make soil ultimately will have a store on the site so that the soil makers can sell their artisanal soil. And it will follow the trajectory of artisanal chocolate, coffee, and beer. Artisanal soil is next. I think it's already there, by the way. How many people will only order from Point Reyes compost if they're ordering soil in Marin? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are people who have very strong ideas about where they get their compost from already. <laughs> All right, let me uh, approach the building soil. Um, from a geological standpoint, you know, geologists told us how long it takes to basically uh, watch the, the hard rock um, be able to disaggregate and how the weather and how from water and sun 
and sometimes roots to break it up, and, and sometimes we maybe had some understanding of biology to de demineralize and make things available. But actually, if you go back and look in terms of, of the really deep, dark soils in the Midwest that were really created by animal impact and by predators moving them off, and they never ate more than about 30% of those grasses, one of the things that was missed, I think, a lot about the, from the geological understanding was is that grasses and fungi evolved together. They showed up similar time, and they worked together, and you need animals as that third component to actually help create. When you start to look at the biology, and we're just seeing in some science finally identifying that the biology can make more and more resistant carbon in the soil than the organic matter itself. So when you get to some of these fungi, they actually have more resistant carbon that does not want to break down and will last in the soil over 100 years, so you're actually assuring that you are sequestering and it's going to stay. But I think that Roland Bunch, when he educated me years ago that you could build it over an inch a year, that was in a tropical region, okay. That was using, though, in corn systems where you start to bring in macuna bean, and uh, there used to be history with growing that in this country years ago when we actually thought about building our soils instead of just adding fertilizers and killing them. And in essence, the amount of biomass that that produces, and then, therefore, the organic matter, it starts to build, and the biology starts to build. So does it still respire? Yes. Do you still lose CO2? Yes, the atmosphere. But when the biology gets extremely healthy, and David Johnson's showing us this, and it was just on Will Harris's farm in, in Georgia, and left one hour before Hurricane Michael uh, hit his farm, but in essence, there was there a, a learning that uh, supported Johnson's work, and that is as you improve the biological health of the soil, the respiration rate will eventually plateau. And so the photosynthesis efficiency increases, and the amount on a percentage basis of carbon re-released to the atmosphere diminishes, and it all becomes more efficient, and you're sequestering more and more, but you're also building. And this is not geological time, here's the difference, this is biological time. And that can replicate rapidly. And that's the part we're working with. If you'd like to read a really good book about it, uh, David Montgomery's latest book, Growing a Revolution, I th think really does capture a lot of the science and the data of that. That's fascinating. Um, next question uh, for Josh. Could you tell us about the actual process of of composting. Do you use the three bin or do you take a, a screen around four posts or do you do what my sister used to do of just take the produce from her kitchen and dig a hole and put it in her garden and gradually that garden was really rich. I mean they're really simple ways, the old-fashioned ways of putting your food waste into the garden and covering it up and keep putting it in different places. Or what do you think about the three bin and all the different methods, the funnel, the turning, Tell us a little bit about the actual process of how, how you make soil. So there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways to make soil, but I'll tell you the state of the human species right now is that just about everybody who even thinks they're composting aren't. It's not really soil making that they're they're doing in the in in anything close to the efficient way of doing it. There's 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 thousands of people right now who even tried to make soil and then it didn't work, and they'll tell you that composting doesn't work. It's because there's really there's there's only a few things you need to know, but if you don't know them, it's not going to work. And that is, there's a certain carbon to nitrogen ratio you're aiming for. 
It's around 30 to 1, 30 times as much nitrogen as carbon. I'm sorry, backwards, 30 times as much carbon as nitrogen. There's, uh, there's uh, moisture to keep track of, uh, and then there's um, airflow. It's just three things. Um, and it sounds complicated, but the human mind is so complex, you get a really good feel for it if you just see it done well. But tell us, how, how do you do it? I, I prefer a thermophilic process. So you can do it, you can do, you can do worms, you can just bury stuff in the ground, but a thermophilic process by which you are, you become God to that compost bin. And you create the conditions for a world where trillions of microbes are going to spring to life and make soil faster than any other method and out of more diverse inputs than any other method. So it's a thermophilic hot process, that's what kills the pathogens, that's what makes the most soil. Because what we are, we are saying here is that you with a small, you know, uh, uh, a bin, a soil making bin that's a third of the size of this table could be taking food waste from a dozen of your neighbors, single family neighbors, single individual neighbors, if you get a nice hot thermophilic process going on. You won't be overwhelmed, the, but the microbes will be giving that good compression ratio. So it's the, it's the hot, it's the hot method that really allows you as a soil maker in a very small footprint to receive a lot of food waste. And so we'll be putting those kind of educational videos onto the website. We're also creating what we consider the world's greatest uh, compost bin. We're now calling a soil making bin uh, because there's a lot of terrible ones out there. There's a lot of ones out there that assume that people will never figure out how to do it right. So they'll just kind of keep you busy turning things and cranking things. But if you, if, when you get good at it, you don't have to turn it maybe at all because when you're adding the inputs, you're seeing what's going on, you're seeing, oh, wait a minute, this is gonna get a bit sloppy if I don't put in enough sawdust or leaves or whatever. You're, you're, you're building the pile in such an intelligent way that there's a, it's very efficient, very low burden, not a constant upkeep, and you get 130, 140 degree temperatures that just tear through anything. So we'll be putting more of that information on the website. There's many ways to do it, but what we have to do right now is is demonstrate the one method that will work for the most people, single bin, continuous add. So you're always eating food, so you're putting the food in the top and you're having soil come out of the bottom. That's the system that we're promoting. And then we want people to get really innovative after that, but we've got, we're kind of at the Model T phase, right? Where we got, got to like get the model out there that works for the most people, gives them the greatest chance of success, and that is coming. That's part of what you'll find at makesoil.org. I want to add one and also, because everything Josh said, I would support a thousand percent. And in the first world where we have food waste, this is completely a no-brainer. And it's very, very important to follow and follow um, his approach. I would add that when we're looking in places of the world where we don't have food waste per se, except that that lost insects or rodents, and that would be the food waste that would happen in much of the world, um, we're, we're, we don't have the opportunity of food waste for compost, and so we, we do need to go through that. And our old ideas around compost, which is not exactly biodynamic understandings of composting, but of our anaerobic processes of composting are exactly as Josh is talking about, and they're important. When you think in terms of anaerobic work in a composting scenario like the David Johnson and Sue methodologies, where he was trying to get rid of dairy waste with high salinity, he went to an aerobic process and a no-turn process, and it reaches the thermophilic stage early, and then it drops, and he throws some worms in, and it sits for 12 months. And in those 12 months, the bacterial um, populations shift dramatically, and it takes 12 months. 
but then you end up with a, a very, very dispersed group of bacteria. And as I used to always say, David, what's in there that makes it work so well? And certainly there are fungi. And I wanted to, in a reductionist science mindset, say, what is it, what is it? And he kept always telling me, everything's in there. <laughs> all the pathogens are in there, all the good stuff's in there. And that's the kind of thing that exists in our soils too. And I think, Dr. Miller, that's part of what, when we grow up on farms and we eat with dirty hands, we keep inoculating the biology in our gut and we're probably healthier, we have less asthma, we have less whatever, because of that really healthy system. Then what Johnson's using is that as an inoculant for the soil, and we can use that anywhere without having to carry an input-based system to help stimulate that rhizosphere of the roots, as Dr. Miller talked about when she was up here, and really getting that robust and then getting carbon to be left there by the biology and by the root exudates at the same time. So it's another one. You can find his um, process on the web if you're interested. Hi, um, my name is Carla and I live in Oakland. Um, I was wondering what you think about municipal compost and I understand what you're saying about it doesn't create the same um, type of experience. Um, but I was really excited when it came to my building. I was thinking that at least it's diverting um, organic waste from a landfill and I hope creating some consciousness. But specifically, I was wondering what you think about the practices of municipal compost facilities. Like, are they getting the benefit, creating the soil that you're talking about? Because I don't know, once the truck comes and picks up, I don't know what happens to it after that. Um, and then, then just the second question is, um, which I guess I could ask the soil maker people, but can we make soil if we live, if we have no access to yard? I guess it would be a worm bin. Um, so those are my questions. So the municipal programs are better than nothing. Uh, so in a world where the planet is sort of hemorrhaging, it's like a nice, a better, a better thing to do. Um, they're generally, um, I wouldn't say, cutting corners might be putting it strong, but they're trying to get a really fast turnover. And they're pulling some strings and they might be, they might have like a bulldozer out there that's going back and forth and turning it all over all the time. Uh, it might be piping air into it. There's probably a fair amount of electricity and, and gasoline being used to, to make soil on that level. Um, and what comes out, um, you know, it's like it, most people in this room wouldn't, wouldn't stop at a, you know, if you stopped at a truck stop and they sold you a cup of coffee for 35 cents, you'd be a bit suspicious, right? We didn't used to be, but most people in this room would say, ah, I think they cut too many corners. And that's, that's a bit of the situation with, with what you get in some of these municipal programs, which are, again, better than the completely barbaric process of throwing the planet into the trash. Uh, but that's what I'd say about that. Our, you know, small batch artisanal soil making, I'm glad you got excited when that um, uh, program came to your town. Uh, your excitement is going to be um, 10 times that when you're making soil with your neighbors. Now, if you just, if you don't have a lawn, that's fine. If, is there like, a, you know, in bet between where the house meets one of these like nature band-aids of a shrub out front or whatever, like there's so many places you could stash a little compost bin and those microbes are all in the air and a lot of them at least and they're, they're willing to descend upon that. They're already on the food and so on. But if you're really, truly not set up to make soil, and yes, you can look into worm bins inside. I've done that many times. It's easy to, it's easy to kill your worms over and over and over again to, to end up composting your worms um, just with one wrong move. Too many strawberry tops, this and that. It's very finicky. It's very finicky. Um, so don't get attached to your first batch of worms. 
Bokashi, all these things, there's, there's a lot of methods. But what we're really saying here right now is um, put yourself in the system, get really clever, see if there's somewhere where you could stash a, a, small, um, a small soil making bin. But within four blocks of you, there's, there is a like 99.99% chance that one of your neighbors could, could put a bin in their yard, and it's about that relationship now. You're actually gonna have more fun walking your scraps over to them and running into people around, around the bin who are also walking their scraps over and burying them together. That creates a kind of community. That's what an ecosystem looks like. I just wanna say I love that idea. I've seen people fall in love around the compost bin, you know, and meet each other. I mean, doing something together that feels that good and is good for the planet, we need something like that. We're tired of going to loud places and drinking and shouting at each other with the TV playing in the background. It's, it's a, quite a romantic setting, actually. You should have that as part of the site. There should be a, a compost sure. meetup where people put their, put yeah. their profiles. Well, each, and, each of these soil sites becomes like a meetup. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, maybe they could even get rated a little bit on how good their compost is, you know? <laughs> well, I only want to date a top performer when it comes to composting. And, and, and to be clear, you know, there's, there's so many websites out there that you are, are vying for your attention. You know, what, is, what does this Make Soil website do? It, it's, it's looking at every interaction that will arise from this relationship between the soil makers and the soil supporters, which is a, which is a new behavior in society. So there's all kinds of react, rela, relationships and communication that needs to occur for this new relationship that the site handles, including you may not want every random person to know your address and that you're you leave your fence you know, unlocked or whatever and how to get in and when. So if you don't want it to be a public site, there's an approval process. You kind of have to have a little back and forth until you trust the people that are coming there. You can limit it to the number of people that you want to come there. So if you can only handle, if, you're, if your skills are only at the point where you can handle food waste from one or two or three more neighbors, that's fine. The site will keep you from getting overwhelmed. It'll keep you from having folks involved you don't want to have involved. It's, it's this kind of thing that allows this new relationship to become mainstream in society that we're handling with the platform. That just fantastic, fantastic idea. And I, I just have two comments that the more concrete we delete, the more little mini sites there'll be for, for that. So think about where you can remove concrete in your life. <laughs> and um, the dust bowl was stopped or, and reversed by tree planting. You know, the dust bowl where all the topsoil blew off, planting trees helps start the process of renewing the topsoil. Real quick comment, you know, I, I, I did start an urban farm with some friends and a community garden, still going today. There's tons of benefit of teaching people to grow food, but I'm telling you, making soil should come before it. And here's why. You get together with your friends and make soil, that soil will talk to you and it'll say, plant something in me. It'll just, it'll start taking care of itself. Folks realize then they want to get involved in growing stuff after that soil making process. They'll, you'll, you won't forget to plant the tree. You won't forget to plant some food once you've made that soil. Hi. Um, as you mentioned, Josh, the compost shrinks 30 times as it decomposes. Food scraps do. Food scraps shrink a lot more than garden scraps because there's less woody stuff in it. So. It makes a lot more sense to have the homeowner compost it right at their house. Then there's less to pick up. There's less volume, less expense. 
and they don't have to store smelly garbage till it gets picked up. <clears throat> At home, I have a, a small composter that I designed. We sold them for a while. And I actually can put all my organic waste and my human waste into the composter, and it all decomposes. It's real easy to use it, and it turns into soil. So I think that would be the next step. And then the final step would be if you had a CSA, the CSA could just come and pick up the finished compost and close the loop. Composting of human waste, making soil out of human waste, is, is where we will need to go in the future. It's just something that uh, the mainstream cannot even conceive of right now. But when we, we're starting with creating a mainstream soil-making culture, and then we can actually have that conversation in another five or seven years, and folks will get it. One of the greatest books on composting ever written is called The Humanure Handbook, because if you're going to be composting your human waste, uh, you really need to know what you're doing. But again, that's one of the greatest books ever written on, on soil making. And, and the nitrogen that is, you know, go, you're flushing into the toilet, like, it's what you're trying to buy at the garden store. It's all right there. You know? Well, actually, most of the nutrients are in the urine, yeah. 80 and 90%. Yeah. And there's no pathogens in urine. So you can actually collect urine, dilute it, and use it directly as a fertilizer. Without even processing. So when you sign up at Make Soil and put your soil site on there, you can put that you are very pro P, and and we'll support you in that. <laughs> uh, you're actually even better as a compost ingredient rather than directly on the soil. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank Daphne, Josh, and Tim for a really interesting, provocative, and really important conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs>